Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. You could subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast, at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite download service, and never miss the great content we offer. Hello, and welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Michael Nyberg, Chair of War Studies here at the U.S. Army War College. Thanks for joining us today, and I had the great pleasure today of being joined by my friend James Holland, a BBC multimedia superstar, I think I can say that, uh, author of several books on World War II, and we are meeting here today inside the Eisenhower boardroom at the New Higgins Hotel at the World War II Museum, underneath a, a reproduction of Eisenhower's map for Operation Overlord, about which James has has written. So James, really delighted to have you here. Thank you so much for being with us. Mike, well, thank you for getting me on. And what a map that is. It's, um, what a brilliant boardroom. I want one. Yeah, I want one too, yeah. <laughs> yeah, clearly we're gonna have to remodel A friend of mine had, a, had an aircraft wing, kind of um, as his boardroom table, which was pretty cool. But I think this sort of almost trumps it. It's really amazing, isn't so, it? So, uh, Dr. Breckenridge, the provost, if you're listening, uh, as we remodel offices, and as we remodel classrooms, uh, James and I have a couple of ideas. Yeah, we want maps and we want aircraft wings. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, I wanna start, I guess, with what got you, not only interested in Second World War, but why you thought this is something you wanted to write on, why, that you wanted to be engaged in professionally as a livelihood. Yeah, I'm. Afraid, I, I yes, it's um, it, it's really um, not as impressive as as it it, it sort of ought to be really. Um, so I I was living and working in London at the time. Uh, in my 20s. I'd, I'd, I'd been really interested in Second World War as a kid. So I had FX models. I had, uh, in the UK, Commando comics, which is, you know, massive deal. So I had lots of Commando comics. You know, I used to sort of play with my mates and play soldiers and play World War II and all that kind of stuff and uh, and so on. And I've got, you know, of course, you know, you grew up watching these war movies, Bridge Too Far, you know, uh, Where Eagles Dare, all that kind of stuff. So, um, then in my kind of teens, I went to, you know, when I was at, at, at high school and then at university, I, I studied a lot of history. I studied a lot of American history, actually. I did the kind of War of Independence, I did Civil War, I did Reconstruction, I did all that kind of stuff. But I never, ever did any 20th century history hmm. at all. And at university, my special subject was 17th century and the Restoration. Um, so that was my kind of absolute field. Then I was working in publishing, and I was actually doing PR. And um, it was a time when lots of 20-something girls were getting six-figure advances for writing a genre that was called chick lit, <laughs> which is basically kind of me and my boyfriend and what we got up to, and girlfriends and what we got up to in London, sort of, you know, getting around <laughs> town. And they were all absolutely awful. And I thought, God, how hard, you know, how hard can it be? You know, this absolute drivel is getting them these incredible <laughs> advances. You know, I want a piece of that action. And what I really want to do is live in the country. I've been brought up in the country. I'm a country boy. I, you know, I like visiting big cities. I just don't want to live in them and I didn't want to live in London I want to get out and I just couldn't think what I could do that would enable me to kind of live and wherever PR I wanted. PR sticks you in London more or less. Right, right? 100%. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I wrote these two absolutely awful chick lit novels under a pseudonym um, oh, which is why they can so never I gotta, be traced. I gotta track these down. You won't be, well good luck you won't be able to. <laughs> a they're not in print anymore and B they're under a pseudonym. But, you, you bought them all up and But they them. were really yeah, exactly <laughs> um, but they were they were really awful um, but what it did teach me was was that actually writing cynically doesn't work you know, mm. you have to really passionately be into what you're doing. And, and um, about the same sort of time that I was writing these books, I was playing cricket, which is a great passion of mine. Um, and I was um, 
uh, suddenly I was distracted by this amazing roar and I looked over to the far side across the fire, far side of the field and off to the distance and there was this machine doing this incredible balletic pirouetting around the sky and I turned to the umpire and I said what is that you know absolutely kind of sort of dumbstruck by this vision and sound and he said that's a spitfire. And how old were you at this point? Well, I reckon I must have been about 28. Okay. So, and I just thought, wow. So, past, uh, past your chiclet phase, past, past my your, chiclet phase. Your, your well, it was kind of where this, so the, 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 the Damascene moment with the Spitfire, I reckon, was in the middle of the chiclet phase. So, I. Um, Those of you listening, by the way, who have intel and investigative backgrounds, <laughs> uh, there's money and beer in it for you if you can find this pseudonym. <laughs> The, the world wants to know. <laughs> they really are bad. Um, uh, uh, my first ever Amazon re- review for my first Chitlit novel said, it gave it one star. It said, I've given this one star because I can't give it zero. I wouldn't wish this on anyone who has the will to live. <laughs> Was the pseudonym a female pseudonym? <laughs> no, it wasn't. But, but yeah. Stop pushing, Mike. Okay? I'm, I'm, I'm not, not going to tell we, we you. We can go another way. It's okay. I'm not we gonna can tell. go another so way. So anyway, so literally <laughs> after the, the, the very next weekend, after this this cricket match Spitfire Damascene moment was flying legends at Duxford and Duxford is a is a very famous airfield yeah. Um, yeah. in the UK it's where the Imperial War Museum have their kind of air bit there's an amazing American museum there as well but they also every year they have the flying legends um, air show which is the kind of the it's like the Oshkosh of the, of, of, of the UK I suppose and uh, it's a big old thing and there were loads and loads of um, of Spitfires there and hurricanes and all that so anyway I was I was in so my plan was to then write a novel with a backdrop of the Battle of Britain I became totally obsessed a chiclet novel of the Battle no, of Britain. No, something no, no. different. A I'm proper, kidding. I'm kidding. I'm just kidding. Proper <laughs> historical, not even chiclet. Not, there were no wafts in sight. Um, but it was obviously a love story. It's a big sort of love, loss, and, and um, uh, um, war novel. Sort of, you know, sort of Brideshead revisited meets Birdsong meets Battle of Britain. Uh, uh, that was the kind of sort of the aim. Um, and I really, really loved writing it, and, and it just absolutely transformed everything. And I took the research really seriously. I suddenly remembered that when I'd been doing my dissertation at university. Actually, it was that primary research that I really mm-hmm. enjoyed most. Um, and it's the paper that I got absolutely, by far and away, my best mark in my university degree was, was on that. And I think that was why. And it suddenly it all came back to me. I thought, God, this is, this is the way. Um, and one of the people I interviewed was a chap called Jeff Wellham, who'd, who'd written a book called, um, back in the 70s, called um, First Light. And I was in this pub in Cornwall with Jeff, and he was exactly what you expect a kind of Battle of Britain retired Battle of Britain Spitfire pilot to be. So, you know, he's sort of picking up his beer tankard in one hand and a, and a cigarette ashtray in the other, and he sort of goes, so there's me and my spit, and there's this ME-109 after me, and, you know, moving it all around the, around, the, around the air in this pub. And he was just completely charming. And afterwards, he said, oh, uh, by the way, I, you know, so he said, some years ago in the 70s, I was going through a very bad divorce, and my business had gone, gone um, pear-shaped. And he said, so I sat down, I was feeling a bit sorry for myself, and I sat down and thought about a time where I'd actually done something quite useful. Um, and this was during the war. And I, and I wrote a memoir about my, uh, I wrote a little bit about my, my time in the war. And he said, there is one chapter which is sort of a bit like a day in the life of a Battle of Britain pilot. And he said, I'll send that to you if you like. So when I got back home, back to London, I, I wrote to him and said, you know, dear Jeff, great to see you and all the rest of it. But, you know, how about you, um, you know, is there any chance I could see the whole thing? I mean, it sounds absolutely fascinating. Anyway, literally three days later, the original manuscript hand-typed with kind of pencil annotations on it Very turns cool. up. And I read it and, and think... Gosh, you know, this is really rather good. So I then rang him up and said, look, Jeff, you know, I, I, um, I didn't mention it, but I actually work at Penguin Books and, um, you know, I, I'm not an editor, but if you want me to put it the way of, a, of an editor, I'd be, I'd be delighted to do that because I really honestly think this is more than good enough. 
And he went, Penguin? Didn't even know they still existed. Ah, oh, what the hell? Anyway, so I sent it off to one of the, um, actually, Anthony Beaver's editor, a, a lady called Elio Gordon. And she loved it, and everyone else in Rome Penguin loved it, and we bought it, and it became the best-selling military book of the noughties in the UK. Hmm. First Light. And it's an amazing, amazing memoir. But anyway, that's by the by. But anyway, but Jeff had also been a Malta. And he was telling me about Malta, and I thought, God, you know, why don't I know anything about this? You know, I'm really, there's huge gaps in my, you know, this is, this is 2001 or something. So, you know, I know nothing about World War II, really, apart from what I'd read in Commando Comics as a kid and what I was now researching from the Battle of Britain perspective. Um, and so I, um, I, I went off to try and find a sort of a good narrative history about what happened in, in Malta in the Second World War and couldn't find one. So I said to my agent, well, what do you think about me doing a non-fiction book? And actually, that was the one that got me started because um, I got a much better deal for that than I did my, uh, my novel, which eventually was published as The Burning Blue. Um, uh, and that's what set me on this this course and I just loved it. Yeah, I, I, I love meeting people, I love doing the research, I love going to Kew, I loved going to Malta, I love walking the ground, I like seeing it all, I, I like thinking about it. I mean, I just found it so fascinating. And, and doing that Malta book and doing that, that novel and doing all the research for a novel about the Battle of Britain, it, it unlocked something in me. It, it, it unlocked, um, I love the detective work. I mean, you know about this. Yeah, you know, sure, a lot of research is, is yeah. detective work. It's, mm -hmm. You know, a lot of it can be quite boring and you're mm -hmm. paying for your stuff. And then you have these eureka moments and that's just so thrilling. Um, but it was such a privilege in those years of the noughties to be able to, to be able to interview a lot of veterans while they were still absolutely compass mentors and, and absolutely mm. in command of their faculties and stuff. And, and you know, I interviewed a lot of people in, in those years, um, you know, and, and Americans. And I traveled all around the States interviewing people for various books that I did, you know, on North Africa and, 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 and Italy and elsewhere. And, um, um, and a lot of Germans, too, which was fascinating, you know, how they handle the past. That was just really, really yeah. illuminating and what it means to me. You know, I talked to people who, who spoke to me who had never, ever mentioned ever to anybody their experiences yeah. until I turned up kind of, you know, 70 years later, 65 years later or whatever. Yeah, plenty, you know, plenty and, of cases and, in the and, US and you, think, and you think, yeah, but, but yeah. isn't that amazing that you've yeah. had to bottle that up yeah. all those years? And of course, it was the human drama that kind of, of, of the Second World War, the World War II, that, that sort of got me hooked in the first place, I think. And that sort of marriage of ordinary men doing extraordinary things in incredible machines that are just absolutely changing the face of the world. Um, whether it be a ship, whether it be a plane, whether it be a tank, whether it, you know, whatever, or, or a machine gun, you know, I mean, the, the technological advances in World War II are just so ex extraordinary. And then you start thinking about, you know, well, what would I do? You know, what would I have done if I'd been kind of 20 in 1942? You know, would I have joined the Navy or the Air Force or would I have, you know, been a pen pusher or, you know, how would I have coped with it? And, and that's, I think that is just sort of, you know, endlessly fascinating. But once you get beyond just the human drama interest, then I think, you know, the whys and wherefores, you know, the, I, I've, the analysis of it, I've just got more and more and more interested in. And, so, and, and you know, and I, I, I kind of, I feel, particularly in the last 10, 12 years, that a lot of the narrative history of World War II has not answered question marks that I've had coming to this comparatively late in life and, and, and well, not late in life, but, you know, I mean, you know, I haven't, I, because I didn't study it at school. I didn't, yeah. I, when I was, when I started looking into the Second World War and started studying it in, in depth, I didn't have any preconceived notions at all. So what I see is, you know, what and what we've and we've known each other not that long, but we've been on many trips together, yeah. gotten to know each other well, yeah. uh, in in Normandy and in other places. You can see that 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 passion and enthusiasm you've got mirrored, obviously, to or matched to a set of questions you really are driving in your head. So you're writing narrative history and telling a story, but they're driven by a set of questions. So. Yes. Have those sets of questions, 
I, I think from the end of what you were saying there, I know the answer to this, but I'd like to hear you talk about it. Has the set of questions you want to answer changed as you've done more of this work? Yeah, it has. And, and it's one of those things because the subject is so absolutely vast that you're, you're constantly kind of refining and honing your kind of view on it and your take on it and thinking about it. And I think that's that's really exciting. I mean, you know, the study of history never stands still. Uh, um, you know, we talk about sort of Damascene moments. You know, the, 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 the kickstart was playing cricket and seeing the Spitfire. But another big seminal moment was going to the um, UK um, Staff College at Shrivenham, just outside Swindon, mm -hmm. North Wiltshire. Um, and I was at the small arms unit. And I, I'd actually started writing um, a series of novels featuring a kind of sort of single character called Jack Tanner. And the idea was that he's a kind of sort of rifleman who goes through the whole Second World War. And they're kind of adventure stories. They're like Hornblower or... or Sharp, or you know, any of those kind of sort of series of, of action historical novels that you get, and um, but he just happened to be World War Two. Anyway, I suddenly realised I didn't know enough about the nuts and bolts of yeah. of of day to day operations of how a soldier existed, how battles worked, all that kind of stuff. So I was going and doing some research on, on weaponry. And I went to the small arms unit, and this used to be run by a chap called Lieutenant Colonel John Starling, um, and um, they have everything in this place. I mean, you know, from sort of you know. 17th century muskets to right through to today but obviously it was a massive horde of world war ii stuff and i saw an mg42 and i said well of course you know that was the uh, the best uh, machine gun of the second world war um because i'd read it in a book <laughs> uh, so, you know and, and not primary research at all and john turned on me and he went says who says who <laughs> and in the next five minutes deconstructed why the mg42 was not the best machine gun of the Second World War. And, you know, it depends on what you're, you're, you're judging it, on rate of fire, or is it, you know, sort of practicality or, and cost. And anyway, suddenly I was down this kind of, I, I suddenly thought, oh, my God, okay, yes. And, and I started to realise that actually the narrative of the Second World War, all the big guys, the books that everyone reads, the documentaries that everyone watches on telly, are only being, they're only telling two parts of the three phases of war. Mm -hmm. So if you understand that war is fought on these three levels, you know, the strategic, operational, tactical, most writers focus on the strategic and the tactical. So what you get is lots of one-liners about what it's like being in a foxhole outside San Lo or being inside a Sherman tank or indeed a Tiger tank. Um, you get lots of what it's like being at Eisenhower's headquarters or inside Monty's mind or Rommel's or whoever Pans or whoever it might be. What you don't get is that operational level. It's, it's absolutely skated over, which is one of the reasons why, of course, you know, that, that Max Hastings, who I admire enormously, you know, who I like as a, um, very much as a person who's been very nice to me, but his books don't include the operational level at all. And so he has this incredibly jaundiced view of the Allies, an incredibly yeah. kind of beefed up version of the thing. You know, what he's looking at is, is you, know, uh, you know, American veterans are telling him that the Germans had the best kit ever. Uh, and he's just believing it and accepting it. And of course, once you start looking at that operational level, everything starts to change in the narrative of World War II. And I think that's, for me, that has been incredibly exciting. And, and it's really made me want to get stuff off my chest. So it's also that, and the first time I heard you speak was, was here in New Orleans, and you, you gave a really nice talk about the kind of artisanal production of German weaponry that, that they actually were trying to make beautiful weapons. They were trying yes. to make high, high resource, high intensity, high labor. Yeah. And you're, the point that you were bringing out, which is one that all of us historians try to bring out, is that everything is connected to everything. If you want to understand why the German army would take that approach, yeah. whereas the American army would take this break it, we'll find a new one approach, yeah. it gets to cultural assumptions, economic assumptions, political history, assumptions, past history, all of that. Yeah. So it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful way of taking the material culture 
um, which I confess, I mean, I, I know very little about the material culture of, right. of the wars that I study, but, but the, the fascinating ability to say, look, this isn't about the object, this is about the cultural assumptions that are behind that object and what that says about what a country is trying to do in war. Right. And you did that beautifully. So it's, oh, well, thank it's, you. it's a way to take these small things and I, so I guess my, my question here is, how do you do that as a writer? I've seen you do it as a speaker, and you, you, the same enthusiasm that everybody's hearing here through this interview, James brings to everything that he does, but you should also know he just got off a plane from London, so this is him jet-lagged. So um, <laughs> this, you know, this level line, of, of passion and enthusiasm <laughs> into what he does, writing's a little harder. I, at least I find it hard to put that much passion and enthusiasm into the writing because it's not something where you want to be too frenetic and too crazy. You want to be thinking a little more methodically. So do you yeah, write so, differently so than do, you? I, my, 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 my careful thinking and methodical bit comes before I start writing. And once I start writing, I just absolutely... You're just a beast writing. You're just going I'm nuts. Totally beast. I mean, this time last year we were here and I was having to finish my part four of, of my Normandy book, which then came out in May over, over here and in, um, and in the UK. And, you know, I wrote, I wrote 60,000 words in 10 days. So you're the kind of person who can think it through, get the outline, get it where you want it, and then Ba-doom. pot of coffee and you're gone. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the, the, the process of getting the book together I, I is, is, is a real process. 60,000 words in 10 days is a lot. It's a, it, it's, a, it's a mental strain. It's a physical strain. It's a concentration strain, Yeah, because that's about 160 pages of written book. I mean, I've done it too, <laughs> it's but it's, it, you're exhausted. Yeah, at the it end is. Of it. You are mentally... Ab- I mean, when I got home, I was absolutely stuffed I mean I was really you know I, I just couldn't write another thing for months afterwards because you just you, and it sounds really pretentious and I, I really don't mean it to at all it's just I find I'm, I'm marshalling so much information my brain is absolutely worrying yeah you know trying to kind of sort of keep everything and together you know I, I'm writing for a, what I hope is a, a, a sort of wide audience and a, and a general audience and you know you've got this terrible challenge because you want to have enough detail and enough deep knowledge to um, for, for your reader to trust you and what you're saying, but at the same time you want it to be readable, mm-hmm. uh, and there's such a narrow line to walk on that because if you get too kind of personal and, and too lightweight in the detail, then it just becomes you don't have that authority. But if you have too much authority, then you lose the readability. And so what you're always trying to gain is kind of readability with authority, and that's that's. The tricky bit. So um, what I do is I think first of all I kind of think okay, what are my big things here? And, yeah. and again, I really think I'm lucky that, that I just wasn't I wasn't gr- I didn't grow up in my teens in my early twenties on a diet of, of of these books. I mean, I never read Carlo Deste, I never read Max Hastings or or any of these guys when I was that age. So I have no none of that kind of sort of preconceived kind of sort of um, view on anything. I'm I'm all you know when I come to a subject, I, I I'm sort of I suppose I'm sort of coming to it quite, quite fresh in a, in a way. And I mean, you know, I, I'm, so I'm doing Sicily at the moment. And one of the things that I, I thought about when I was doing Sicily uh, was I was there with the British Army to start off with. And, and you know, when you walk around Sicily, you go, okay, hang on a minute. There's this kind of big black mark about the Allied effort in Sicily that they, they do it in 28 days, and yet kind of lots of Germans seem to get away. And this seems to be a massive downer. And you're thinking, what? I mean, yeah. have, have you been to this place? Yeah. Whose I mean, idea I, was I, it to I, fight here? I mean, you know, you, you, you look at Sicily and you think, Capturing this entire island, you know, when you've got, you're up against sort of, you know, 300,000 enemy troops. I mean, okay, you have massively differing quality and variety, but there's still enemy troops that have got to be subdued. 
you know, at 38 days, you know, when you've got sort of malaria-infested low and bits, mountain, you've got unbelievable mountain after, mountain, after mountain. mountain. You know, you've got Etna in the top corner kind of sort of bearing down on you like Sauron's eye. Yeah. I mean, you know, the whole thing does look a bit kind of Middle-earthy. It does, uh, it And, does. you know, you've got, you know, sort of one of the, you know, Azoro, uh, Ajira, Regalbuto, Centuripe, Troina, all these places that, you know, these guys have to just you know, straight that way. I mean, it's just horrendous. And, you know, and I can't see how anyone can give them a hard time. Yeah. And of course, the other thing I, I you know, and, and of course, Monty gets a huge amount of criticism. You know, he's not a particularly pleasant person. But, but you know, the reason why, uh, the most important thing in any amphibious invasion that trumps absolutely everything is that it doesn't fail. Mm-hmm. So everything has to be done so that on D-Day and D plus one and two and the, those danger days immediately after D-Day, that it doesn't get kicked back into the sea. That that trumps yeah. absolutely everything. And of course, you can have quite ambitious objectives, but but the most important thing is they don't fail. And, and the complexity of any amphibious operation, the harnessing of air, land, and sea on a coalition um, um, unified uh, armed forces is so complex in the 1940s. It, it is it is so incredible. You know, we, we should be just totally overawed by the achievement of just yeah. getting there, let alone kind of worrying about sort of, you know, how many gliders crash or don't make their target or whatever. So what do you tend to do first? So you're, you're taking a new subject, let's say the invasion of Sicily. Yep. Do you tend to go into the archives first or are you one of those folks that wants to see the ground first, get a mental picture of all of this? Yeah, well, I, I'm, I've got a head, head start on Sicily because I've been there a lot of times. I've been there um, with the British Army a few times and stuff. So it's very interesting, I always think, getting perspectives of current servicemen about looking back on, you know, because obviously, particularly in the British Army and in the US Armed Forces as well, you know, these guys have all kind of seen stuff. You yeah, know, I they, did it with the Canadians. Yeah, who, right, right. And, and, you know, they've been there, they've done it, they've got the t-shirt in Iraq right. and Afghanistan and stuff. So they know right. what it's like being under fire. They know what it's like being in difficult conditions. And, and so they, their perspectives, I think, are really, really interesting. Um, I also wrote one of my Jack Tanner novels was set in Sicily. So mm. I did a lot of research for that. Um, and, and I really enjoyed it. So I had a pretty good base knowledge anyway. Um, so yes, then it is absolute, Then it's trying to find my cast list because I do a different thing to a lot of a lot of uh, um, narrative historians. Is that I have a quite defined cast list, uh, and you, the reader, then follows them through there, and they are the conduit to the human drama and the human experience of war. Uh, so rather than having hundreds and thousands of, of one-liners from people that you never get to know to illustrate that human experience, I have my dedicated cast. So the hardest thing is to find that cast list first. So you find your cast list. Then you do, you know, while you're doing that, that might also mean doing general research at the same time. Figuring out where their papers are. Yeah, figuring, figuring out papers out are, figuring all that. To them. Then figuring out, you know, and then, then, then for me it is, okay, what are the key things here? You know, so for me, logistics is massive. So I want, I want first-hand primary resources, um, primary material on logistics. So I'm doing, I'm doing a lot of research onto that, whether it be at NARA or, you know, whether it be, you know, reading the papers of, of TUI spots. Uh, mm-hmm. The other big thing I am, I, I think it's really important to do it in 360 degrees in the round. So, you know, Italian civilians, because it's a big civilian population, uh, um, Italian competence, German competence, Americans, of course, uh, um, British, Canadians, the whole shebang. But I also think it's important to do it, you know, uh, the Allies are fighting big war. You know, they're fighting kind of, you know, air, land and sea. And, you know, a lot of narrative history is incredibly land-centric, and I think it's really important to accentuate mm-hmm. these other components because that is really important to the Allies, and it's very important to the Axis as well because they're right. being hammered by it. Um, and so um, it's, it's, it's making sure that I've got enough voices from, and, and I've got enough research as well on what's going on on, on, 
on in the air and out at sea as well. And obviously, there's incredibly interesting things that are going on because you know the special operations, uh, uh, special forces involved, you know, the special raiding squadron, which then becomes was the SAS and re becomes the SAS again, you know, under Paddy Main. They do this incredible operation, which is not dissimilar to Pont du Hoc and on mm. D-Day in terms of the t terrain and what their objective is. Uh, and they do that incredibly successfully for kind of sort of, you know, one dead and two wounded out of 285 men, whereas all the airborne operations are an absolute fiasco right. because, you know, what they've done is they've trained the troops incredibly well, but they haven't really thought about... You've got the best trained troops being taken to the battle zone by the least trained aircrew, which is kind of obviously a massive problem, which is never, ever particularly squared but all of that is really really interesting and you kind of want to know all that story and I, and I also want to put air power much uh, and, and naval power much more to the forefront on this one as well so as we're I can see and the, the civilian experience I can see the sand starting to sip through yes. so I want to I want to make sure before we go any uh, much further than that your books tend to be a little bit larger in terms of just numbers written do you tend to write big and cut back or what, what's no. your approach as you do this do you know what I'm um, so so what I, I, I uh, yeah I mean normally got a bit big it's just it's so complex it is and one of the problems I have is, is because I have this cast list you know you want to have all the analysis but you also want to get to know the characters that you're writing about and by the time you've sort of you know added them in that you know suddenly the word length is getting is get, getting yeah. bigger I mean not, not all of my books are huge so um you know I did a book on Burma that wasn't particularly big you know my book on Big Week wasn't particularly big the Dan Busters wasn't particularly massive yeah, I, so, I'm so, hoping that Sicily's going to be about kind of 150 160 I certainly don't words. mean that pejoratively no I know you don't I know you don't but it's, it's, it's something that's I'm, I'm sort of very conscious of I mean I have I have a timeline so I have a timeline um, which is is you know ordinary just black non bold is is the main events you know when battles happened you know yeah. when Mussolini gets overthrown or whatever it might be you know meetings etc of, of commanders you know the absolute bare bones of what's going on and then I have my characters and they're color coded so kind of Americans are red British are blue Germans are purple Italians are green and you put those in and uh, and that is your characters and so you know when to put them into the you know, so such and such, it might say, you know, Oberleutnant X um, gets moves up to Carlton Assetta on this day. And so you know, okay, you, you might not necessarily include that in the narrative, but you know that that is what he is doing at that particular point. And you can see how it all crosses over. And, and, and the idea is, rather than kind of do it thematically, I do it absolutely, you know, my narrative is completely chronological. Yeah. So you, you have a line break and then you skip to what the German, you know, your German guy is doing. And then you go back to what the mafia are doing. And then you go back to doing the kind of the civilian in Catania. And then you go back to the kind of the Canadians and, you know, their, their, their push, push northwards or whatever it might be, you know. And, and, and that's how you do it. And you literally just, Go through to, go through to the end. But uh, um, I, I I enjoy writing, and I and I think you know I I've, I do think kind of walking the grounds is really important. I think the whole experiential side of things is another part of research yeah, no which it shouldn't be uh, shouldn't be mocked at all. I mean, the other day I was using the diary of a of a of a German fighter pilot, and he was describing how he drove up to the group operations room and where it was and where it was sighted. So we followed his diary and. We found it, and there it yeah, was, and there was, and it was absolutely one of the same place. Yeah. And and now, and, and what he was describing was exactly what I was looking at. And it, and it's brilliant because now, when I come to that, I can do that description. And having written quite a lot of fiction, I think the fiction helps the non. I think the fiction helps the non-fiction. You know, I, I think that gives you more of a kind of sort of you know a writerly flourish for one. So that leads into my last question: As the blue sands come out of the hourglass, uh, what are you reading now? What did you read on the flight over here? What do you plan to read on the flight back? Well, I'm also is doing it, a series of very. Is it, it chiclet? Are you reading chiclet? No, on the I'm way not. Out? I'm no. not. I'm, I'm, I'm reading back some, some old stuff. So I'm doing, um, when I was a kid, we had these books called Ladybird books, which are history books. They're little kind of for, for aimed at kids, and they, they're 48 pages long. 
they have a, a picture on the right hand side and text on the left and they've restarted them and, and I'm doing work called Ladybird Experts I'm doing 12 on World War Two. they're slightly British biased but 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 not entirely so there's a whole one on the Eastern Front for example very cool um, uh, and anyway I'm, the, the next one I'm doing is a British British one which is is, is Britain's war against Japan 1944 so Kahima Infile Avin Box and all the rest of it so, um, so I you're, wrote, on the, you're on the flight from Heathrow sitting with these uh, well I was writing it Ladybird books oh you're writing okay. I was writing it but yeah what, what so you, I'm, I'm on book this is book nine I think it is so um, what are you uh, reading when you're reading for pleasure you get three hours well, when I read for pleasure to... I read you know I read novels and, and you know as much fiction as I can but I really do because I seem to just read almost continual diet of World War II yeah it is tough I mean you have to keep up with your professional writing you and, absolutely but, do but you, you and, can and that's see hard. Where so I'm reading Peter because it's the 75th anniversary of the Battle of Bulge I'm right. going over there with um, to doing some some um, some stuff over there in December so I'm kind of you know I've studied in the past but I just need to kind of remind myself of it. so I'm rereading Peter's book, which is uh, a superb account of the Battle of the Bulge, yeah, yeah. Um, and really can't be uh, can't be better, I don't think. Um, and John, McMa uh, John, John McManus's book on Bastogne as well which is absolutely terrific. You know, he's a, yeah. I think he's got a great yeah. great grasp of his material. Well, the sand is running out. Uh, yeah. I'm delighted not only that we had this time to chat, but to know that you're coming to Carlisle next week. So we yes, can I'm looking forward to that. That'll be continue the research. conversation at uh, Cafe Bruges or some studies, other uh, so, some yeah, other yeah. some other watering hole that we have in Carlisle. No, that's uh, great, James. I really want to thank you. It's uh, I know you just got here. I know your your time is is limited, but well, no, thank you. Can't thank you enough for making the time. No, it's a blast. We'll, we'll see you in Carlisle. Hey, thank you. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.